Good morning. If you have a Bible, maybe you want to turn to Romans 28. So, Romans 28. What am I thinking of? Romans 8. Saw a few eyebrows got there very quickly. Yeah. Well, Father, we always enjoy looking at your word. It is, it is life for us. It's food to us. It's light to our paths. It's sustenance. But most of all, it shows us you. And we come to know you better. So may your Holy Spirit, your wonderful Holy Spirit, Lead us into truth. The truth that liberates us from our small thinking, our misguided thinking, and lets us live in the liberty of the children of God. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let me read to you a couple of verses that are very familiar to you. And we know, writes Paul in verse 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we all say amen to that, don't we? Amen. But. All things working together for good. It's easy for us sitting in a relatively liberal country in our comfortable chairs on this Sunday not experiencing much persecution for being Christians to say, yes, it is true. It would be hard if we were living in other parts of the world. But I know I'm not only justified by faith, I have peace with God and am reconciled to him. I'm also a son of God adopted to be his son. And since I'm a son, I'm encouraged to call God Father. 
a father who brings his children out with a specific goal in mind. Nothing less than holiness. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. The goal God has for you and me is not our happiness. It is, as others have said many times before, our holiness. So the good God is doing is not defined by your or my idea of goodness, but by God's decision that we should be holy. In short, we're to be like Jesus. So I see the circumstances through which I pass, not as random, but being under the care of a generous, loving, gracious Father. So Paul asks a few questions. What then, he says, shall we say in response to this, verse 31? And he's referring further back than verse 28. He's referring back to all he's written so far. But verse 28 will do for us. And he answers himself with four further thoughts that he brings to us in the form of questions. He says, for example, in verse 31, no opposition can finally crush us. No opposition can finally crush us. And the question he asks to stimulate our thinking is, if God is for us, who can be against us? If we believe God to be who he is, then ultimately no one can crush us, whoever they may be, by whatever title. Here's the second, verse 32. The thought he makes is, no good thing will finally be withheld from us. And the question he uses to stimulate our thinking is this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So secondly, no good thing will finally be withheld from us. Here's the third, verse 33. No accusation can finally disinherit us. And the question he makes is, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And the last one comes in verse 35. No separation from Christ's love can ever befall us. And the way he addresses it to us is in the form of the question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? So let's look at that using an Old Testament saint as our jumping off point. Now the Old Testament stories are not written to illustrate theological truth. They're written because it happened and God is revealing himself through them. But the story of Joseph in the Old Testament helps us to understand what Paul is getting at here. He never knew Paul. He didn't know the name of Jesus Christ. Grace for him, him was a partly formed concept. But nonetheless, his life demonstrates something of what God was doing. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 40. And we find ourselves in the middle of the story of Joseph. And I choose it too because it's a familiar one to you and it's one that is recounted over the last 14 or so chapters of Genesis, so I haven't got time to read those, so I'm assuming that you fully understand the story and aware of it, then we can make progress. In chapter 45, and you know what happened to Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers, he became a slave to Potiphar, he was accused falsely of rape and thrown into prison. 
and then he becomes Prime Minister. So life for him was painful. Life for him included significant suffering. One of the Psalms speaks about him pleading for his life and being in chains for his life. But he's able to say in chapter 45 when he makes contact with his brothers again, he says this, Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh. And then he goes on. Though he's clear that his brothers are entirely to blame for the mischief that was caused in his life, he believes that God was in charge all along. So this is a story that points to God, as they all do, but it's also a story that includes suffering and shows us that there is a cost included in our commitment to faith, which we are demanded from time to time. Being a Christian is not straightforward and isn't easy. Those who pretend that becoming a Christian means all your problems are solved are misleading others. Though it's a story that has a happy ending, and we all like happy endings, don't we? It is a great story. We shouldn't pass too quickly over the period of suffering on an in innocent young man. There isn't much that's said negatively about Joseph. He isn't a perfect person. He's not the one we follow. Jesus is the only one of that. But being faithful to God and living a life of faith and integrity will certainly not keep us from harm. It will not provide us with a rock-solid guarantee that we have no difficulties. Indeed, there are times when the, it increases the likelihood of conflict as we have to face a world of very different values and standards from those of the kingdom of God, which is what many of our brothers and sisters are facing even as we meet here, but we also face from time to time. So I just want to bring three thoughts to you as we think about Romans 8. All things God is working for the good of those who love God. In all things. I wonder what comes to your mind, what you're going through. You're thinking, well, yes, but not this, Charles. If you knew what I'm facing, then you'd have to say this is not working together for my good. I want to bring you three thoughts. Here's the first one. That the significance of our lives is wrapped up with our involvement in God's purposes. Our lives are not significant in and of themselves, but only insofar as we are wrapped up with the purposes of God. We all want our lives to have significance, don't we, to matter. Well, we should observe that from the account of Joseph's life, the significance of his life is wrapped up with God's greater purposes. And if we want our lives to matter, we should get involved with what God is doing in the world. That's what really counts. I've probably said it before, but I remember my daughter in a time when she was working very closely with youth, came upon a statistic which was to the effect that a huge proportion, 80% or more, 
of young people aged between 14 and 17, when asked what they wanted to be in life, was famous. That was the word, famous. They weren't wanting to be famous doctors or famous scientists or famous explorers. They just wanted to be famous. Can you think of anything more pathetic than that? That's their goal in life, to be famous. Anyone who can hold a microphone can be famous, temporarily. But our lives have count when we are wrapped up with the purposes of God. There's every likelihood that Joseph spent the best years of his life between 17 and 30 being sold by his brothers into slavery and being cast into prison, falsely accused of rape. The very most productive years of his life are wasted by being a slave and more a prisoner. By any human standard, you'd have to say that renders his life pointless and meaningless. By any human standard. Well, we, of course, don't work from human standards. We don't operate in that way. Joseph himself is clearly aware that God is with him all the way through. So in chapter 39, when he has in, is invited by Potiphar's wife to have sex with her, because he's a healthy, handsome young man, it's his awareness of God that prevents him from doing that. How then could I do such a wicked thing, he says, and sin against God? It's this awareness of God that enables him to interpret his fellow prisoners' dreams when they come to him and say, no one can interpret. He says, well, God, all interpretations belong to God. Even in the depths of his pain and suffering, he is acutely aware that God is with him. It's this awareness of God that enables him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. When Pharaoh says, I've heard it said you can interpret dreams, he says, no, I can't. God can do it. Tell me your dreams. He's instantly aware of God. This young man has gone through the rigours of being, the horror of being sold into slavery by his brothers, of all people. And with no prospect of ever seeing his family again, and life becoming as thin as a spider's web, suffering in slavery. And every right action he takes seems to redound evil to him. It just goes down and down and down. He's nonetheless aware that God is with him. Chapter 39 says this, The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospers, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. He prospered, we're told, and he was successful. Now we must carefully interpret those two words. What would be the most successful thing he could think of? Well, it would be to be set free and return to his family, wouldn't it? And that didn't happen. No, the success and the prospering that this author is telling us about is nothing to do with Joseph's happiness. It is all to do with Joseph becoming the man of God God wants him to be. Because God has a task here for him, if he could but see it, but he can't. So in the darkness, when he doesn't understand a thing, 
God is nonetheless enabling him to be a man of God. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Remember the promise to Abraham? We looked at that. That I will bless you and through you and your descendants bless the nations. Well, that's exactly what's happened here. To an Egyptian pagan master, to the presence of a godly man, he comes as a slave. And what's more, when things go from bad to worse and he gets thrown in prison because of Potiphar's wife's wickedness, we read this, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. What would have been success for Joseph? Out of the prison, free from slavery, return to his family. But that's not what this author is telling us. This author is telling us that success is becoming the man or woman of God that he wants regardless of where you are and regardless of your circumstances. That's success. We have to ask what possible relevance in chapter 40 could the dreams of two prisoners have to world events? The significance of our lives is all to do with being wrapped up with God's purpose. And we read in chapter 40 of two dreams. The cupbearer has a dream and the baker has a dream. Well, what difference does that make? But Joseph, being a man of God, cares for those with him. So he says to them one day, why are your faces so sad today? That's a strange thing to say in a prison, isn't it? Can you think of any prisoner there who would have a smile on his face? Can you think of any prisoner who would be glad? Oh, another day in this hole. Wonderful. So don't they all look sad? So what's special about these two? Is that Joseph is the kind of guy who cares about other people even when they're stuck in prison with him. And he can do nothing for them. He cares about them. So he asks them, why are you so sad today? It's not an English, how are you, fine job. He asks because he wants to know. And they say, well, we've had some dreams that we don't understand what they mean. Well then, God can give the interpretation, tell me your dreams. And they recount to him his dreams. And here's the thing. It will be the cupbearer's memory of Joseph interpreting his dream that will get him to tell Pharaoh later on when Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret to call on this young man because he can interpret dreams. And when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, by doing so, Pharaoh exalts him to first place behind him and the dreams of Joseph are fulfilled. Do you remember those in chapter 37? Three pairs of dreams. These are the middle pair. And it is the memory of the middle pair that will allow for the Pharaoh's dreams to be fulfilled and therefore Joseph's dreams to be fulfilled, to come true. 
And suddenly, we have the saving of a nation because of one seemingly insignificant act done in the depths of a dark dungeon on an ordinary day. So when we surrender our desire for independent living, when we surrender our insistence that God does good things to us in our small world and rather join God in what he's doing in his world, then ordinary things can become highly significant things in God's hands. Mother Teresa never set out to influence presidents. She just wanted to look after the poorest of the poor in Calcutta. But towards the end of her life, she met with the American presidents. God can take seemingly ordinary, inconsequential people and give us great influence if our lives are caught up with him. Here's the second thing. The timing of events is bound up with a larger picture. Isn't waiting one of the hardest things to do? Don't our desires for things to move on sometimes make us anxious? Well, the thing to remember, of course, is time is created and God created everything created. Therefore, God is never, ever, ever in a hurry. He cannot be. It's a contradiction in terms. God is on the move, but never in a hurry. So the issue of when God's promises come about and the associated waiting that's often entailed is not to be understood merely from my limited perspective. So in Joseph's case, he has 13 years of bondage, slavery and imprisonment, which must have been intolerable. And finally, it seems, when he inter interprets the cupbearer's dreams and says, um, by the way, put a word in for me, with Pharaoh, because I shouldn't be here, in the hope that at last he might be set free. The final line of chapter 40 says this, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him when two full years have passed. So for 13 long years, every prayer that Joseph prays appears not to have been heard, appears not to have been answered. But here's the thing. Something bigger is happening. A famine is on the way. God knows about it. You can ask me questions like, why didn't God stop it? Well, that's a pointless question because he didn't. It won't get us anywhere. The famine is on the way. And if the famine strikes and there's no one to deal with the famine properly, it will wipe out Egypt and that being the superpower of the day, it will also wipe out all the nations round about, including Abraham's descendants, through whom the nations are to be blessed. Something big is happening here, much bigger than Joseph. He doesn't know it yet, but he has to hang on. So if that action is not taken, who knows how it might work out. So God is committed to saving the ones through whom he's promised to bless the world. God's plan, we discover after the event, is to make sure he has a man in the right place, at the right time, for the right circumstance. He can't explain that to Joseph because it wouldn't seem to make any sense. 
But what he's done, he's used the wicked jealousy of his brothers, the immorality of Potiphar's wife, the forgetfulness of a cupbearer, and the dreams of a king to bring Joseph to Potiphar's attention at just the right time. If the cupbearer had remembered his promise, had spoken on Joseph's behalf to Pharaoh, there is a sporting chance that Pharaoh might have been gracious and said, yes, he can be freed. If he had been freed, he would have made his way back to Palestine. If he had been in Palestine, he would have been nowhere near Pharaoh when he had his dream. Then who would have interpreted the dreams? Then who would have made the preparations necessary for the famine? Who would have saved the nation? So God's plan is to put someone somewhere 20 years before the event so that when it happens, he's in place. So we need to keep in mind the big picture of God's intentions. Do you know what God's intention is? is to save as many people as possible before Jesus comes again. Isn't that right? That's his intention. It's not to give you and me a long life, not to give us an easy life, not to make us happy, but through us to bless others that they may know there is a God in heaven who sent his son Jesus to take their place upon the cross that they also may know the blessings of God. Because one day time is going to run out. We must never forget the big picture, which can make a little sense of the ups and downs of our lives. Otherwise, we're at the mercy of our own feelings and emotions, aren't we? So the timings are wrapped up with God. 20 years before he'll become the one who saves the people in the famine, but it'll be 13 years before he's exalted to prime ministership. 13 years of darkness, loneliness, suffering, pain, sorrow, with seemingly no end. All things working together for good. Yes, Joseph, they are. Because the good God is looking for is the saving of many people. And here's the third thing. You always have a choice, even when you don't have a choice. And if you think that's a paradox, it is. You always have a choice, even when you don't have a choice. These days, choice is one of those buzzwords we must have. We must have choice. We can have too much choice, can't we? I mean, me, for example, I do not want to choose the hospital I go to if I am in injured or anything like that. I just want to go to a hospital that look after me. I don't have to choose it. As the ambulance men arrive at my last moments and say, here's a list of hospitals. Which one would you like us to take you to? We can give you statistics on all these things. I say, just take me where I'll be looked after. Sometimes we have too much choice, don't we? But choice is one of those buzzwords. Well, we do need help in making guidance and things, but here, here's the thing. For 13 years, Joseph has not been able to make a single choice as to his future. He is sold into slavery by his brothers. That was not his choice. And he wouldn't have made it. 
He is sold by the Ishmaelites to Potiphar as a servant. That is not his choice. He would not have done that. He is cast into prison, accused of a crime he did not commit. That was not his choice, and he wouldn't have made it. He is left in prison, forgotten and alone. That is not his choice. For 13 years, he does not make a single choice of any significance. There are decisions that we are free to make, but there are also times in our lives when we don't have the luxury of making decisions, when we are very, very tiny, like a little baby that came in a bit earlier on in a pushchair. Doesn't make any decisions about anything. Is entirely looked after by his parents and grandparents and other friends. Maybe at the other end of our lives, when we get very old, again, the choices are taken out of our hands and we don't make them anymore. Other people make them on our behalf. Treat your children carefully because they choose your nursing home or something like that. But there may be other times too when people are in prison, as many are today. That's not the choice they're making. When people are in grinding poverty, they don't have choices to make. It's just one grind day after day. Those people with terminal illnesses, the, the matter of choices may be an irrelevance to them. But here's the thing. While we may not have the choice as where we will live, we do have the choice as to how we will live where we live. Did you get that? It's very important. Joseph does not have the choice as where he is, but he does have the choice as to how he will live where he is. We may not have the choice as to where we might work or what we might do, or if we're unemployed, that we do nothing, as it were. But we do have the choice as to how we will work, whatever we do, wherever we do it. Did you get that? It's the how, not the where and the what that are the important things. So we do have a choice, even when we don't have a choice. Joseph chose to honour God throughout the difficult and stressful years of his capture. He chose to respect Potiphar and to honour God in the years of his household service. He chose to respect the prison warder and to honour God in the years of his imprisonment. He chose to deal kindly with his fellow prisoners even though it would probably be of no benefit to him. And all this meant that God had his man in the right place at the right time, so that on an ordinary day that started just like any other day, one in which he acted with his usual kindness and courtesy, one day that acted, ended with no significant change in his circumstances would prove to be a pivotal day of God. And one day, Joseph would be catapulted from his prison to prime ministership within a day, simply because he was a man of integrity and honour who chose how he would do what he did and how he would live his life. So we need to choose to be faithful in the small, apparently insignificant things of life. To treat people with kindness and courtesy and love regardless of whether they can do us any favours. To be honest and upright in all that we do, whether or not anyone knows about it. Christian, a man becomes a Christian and sends a letter to the Inland Revenue and says, I've, I've just become a Christian and my conscience is pricking me, so I'm sending £100  
in payment of past income tax not yet paid. P.S. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> we have to be honest and upright in all our dealings. And we make these choices not because we benefit from them, but because it's right to do them. We live our lives by the kingdom of heaven. So we pray that God's will is done on earth as it's perfectly done in heaven. And we live our day today as if it mattered to God. God works for the good of those who love him in all things because he's making us like Jesus. Our significance is wrapped up in the big purposes of God. The timing is all to do with the big purposes of God. And we always have a choice, even when we don't have a choice. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we as responsible human beings made in your image and in your likeness are entirely able to live for your glory whatever the circumstances may be. To that end, we thank you for the gift of your spirit who enables us to live a life to glorify you. And we're about to remember, Lord Jesus, what you did for the glory that was set before you. For the joy that was set before you, you could endure the cross for what you saw as a result, the saving of many people. Help us to live our lives in a similar way for the joy that is set before us to endure some of the pain and sorrow of this life in order that the great purposes of God, the saving of many people, may be accomplished, even through us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.